Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, which we shall use to brace ourselves for the election, consider what may come after it, and prepare for the role we may need to play in the coming weeks. Clips today are from a TED Talk from Van Jones, Amicus from Slate, The Michael Brooks Show, The Truth Report with Chauncey DeVega, a talk from AOC, Deadline White House on MSNBC, and Strange Days with Fernanda Mondi. As an attorney, uh, as a political commentator, and frankly, as a former White House official, uh, I used to think I knew a lot about how America picks a president. I was wrong. I did not know. And this year I've been doing some research into some of the, the fine print and uh, all the different things in our Constitution that we never talk about. And I've discovered some legal loopholes that shock me, I guarantee will shock you, and could determine the way that the presidential election in 2020 turns out. For instance, did you know that under our Constitution, a presidential candidate could actually lose the popular vote fail to get a majority in the Electoral College, refuse to concede, uh, manipulate hidden mechanisms in our government, and still get sworn in as the president of the United States of America? That's a true fact. I know it sounds like some crazy House of Cards episode, and I wish it was, because then we could just change the channel, but I just described to you a real-world, real-life possibility that could occur this year, the year I'm talking, in 2020, or in some other year, if we don't fix some of these glitches in our system. So if you think, though, that the American people's choice in a U.S. presidential election should actually be sworn in to become president of the United States, please pay attention to this talk. I'm going to teach you how to stop a coup. Okay. now where to begin. All right. How about this? It turns out that one of the main safeguards of U.S. democracy is not in the Constitution at all. It's not in the law at all. It's actually just a little tradition. It's a little custom. And yet this one voluntary gesture is one of the main reasons that you almost never have riots and and bloodshed and strife after a U.S. election. What I'm talking about is a concession speech. Okay, it's ironic. It's the one speech no presidential candidate ever wants to give. And yet it is that public address that is most important for the health and the well-being of our nation. It's that speech, you know, when a presidential contender gives it, it's after the advisors come and the media tells them, look, you're not going to get enough votes to be able to hit that magic number of 270 uh, electoral college votes. You're just not going to get there. At that moment, you don't think about this, but the fate of the entire republic is in the hands of a single politician and their willingness to walk out there and stand in front of their family and stand in front of the cameras and stand in front of the whole nation and say, I am conceding the race voluntarily. Thank you to my supporters. The other person has won now. Congratulations to them. Let's unite behind them. Let's move on. Let's be one country. God bless America. You've seen it a thousand times. Make no mistake. This is a remarkable tradition in our country because at that moment, that candidate still has at her command a nationwide army of campaign activists, of diehard partisans, tens of thousands of people. They could just as easily take up arms, take to the streets. They could do whatever they want to. But that concession speech 
instantly demobilizes all of them. It says, hey, guys, stand down, folks, it's over. Moreover, that concession speech helps the tens of millions of people who voted for that person to accept the outcome. Acknowledge the winner, however begrudgingly, and then just get up the next morning, go to work, go to school, maybe disappointed, but not disloyal to America's government. And even more importantly, that concession speech has a technical function in that it kind of allows all the other steps that our Constitution requires after the voting. And there are a bunch of steps like you got the Electoral College that's got to meet. You've got Congress has got to ratify this thing. You've got inauguration to be had. All that stuff can just move ahead on automatic pilot because after the concession speech, every subsequent step to either reinstate the president or elevate a new president just happens on a rubber stamp basis. The Constitution requires it, but it's a rubber stamp. But we sometimes forget candidates do not have to concede. There's nothing that makes them concede. It's just a norm in a year in which nothing is normal. So what if a losing candidate simply refused to concede? What if there is no concession speech? Well, what could happen might terrify you. I think it should. First, to give you the background, let's make sure we're all on the same page here. Let me give you this analogy. Think about a presidential election as a, as a baseball game. The end of the ninth inning, whoever is ahead wins, whoever's behind loses. That's baseball. But could you imagine a different world in which in baseball, there were actually 13 innings or 14 innings, not just nine. But we just had a weird tradition. If you're behind in the ninth inning, you just come out and concede. All right. So all those other innings don't matter. That's really how the presidential elections work in America, because the Constitution actually spells out two different sets of innings. You got the popular election process that everybody pays attention to. And then you've got the elite selection process that everybody essentially ignores. In a close election, if nobody concedes, the second invisible process, these extra innings, if you will, they actually matter a whole lot. Let me explain. That first set of innings, popular election, it's what you think about when you think about the presidential election. It's the, the, the primaries, the caucuses, the debates, uh, the conventions, it's election night. It's all that stuff. Most of the time, the loser on election night at that point just concedes. Why? The American people have spoken, all of that. But according to the Constitution, the game is technically not over. After the cameras go away, after the confetti swept away, the Constitution requires this whole other set of innings, these elite selection process stuff. And this is all behind closed doors. It's among government officials. And, and this process goes from the end of the vote counting in November through December, all the way into January. You just never think about it because for so many generations, these extra innings haven't mattered much because the election night loser just concedes. So this other stuff's just a formality. Even in 2000, Vice President Al Gore gave up as soon as the Supreme Court ordered an end to the vote counting. Gore did not continue the fight into the state legislatures, into the Electoral College, into Congress. He didn't try to discredit the results in the press. Frankly, he didn't send his supporters out into the streets with protest signs or pitchforks or long guns. As soon as the court said the vote count is done, he just conceded to George W. Bush. Because that's what we do. That's just kind of how we do things around here. You don't fight in the extra innings until maybe 2020.
when one major candidate is already saying he may not accept the results of the vote counting. Curse you 2020. So what could happen instead? Instead of conceding, a losing candidate could launch a ferocious fight to grab power anyway or to hold on to power anyway. In the courts, yes, but also in the state houses, electoral college, even in Congress. They could file, for instance, dozens of lawsuits attempting to block the counting of millions of mail-in ballots, saying they should all be thrown out. They're all fraudulent. Then they could demand that the states refuse to certify the election because of all this alleged fraud or, or interference from a foreign power, or the loser's party could send a rival uh, slate of electors to the Electoral College or to Congress and say, no, we're the real electors and create a whole situation with that. Any of this stuff could create such a mess in the Electoral College and the Congress that the whole matter just winds up in front of the House of Representatives for the first time since the 1800s. Now, here's where it gets totally crazy. If the presidential election winds up in the Congress, in the House of Representatives, they don't have to pay any attention at all to the popular vote or the electoral vote. It's like the election never happened. And then it gets even crazier. The final tally in the House is taken not by delegate, but by delegation. In other words, individual Congress people don't get to vote. It's done by states. Now, get your head wrapped around this. In 2020, the majority of Americans live in blue states, but there are more red states. So there's a possibility that the Republicans in the House of Representatives could just anoint their candidate to be president, even without the popular vote or a majority electoral college. That could happen. Now, some people would call that outcome a perfectly legal, perfectly constitutional coup against the very idea of majority rule in the United States. That is possible under our Constitution, and it could happen this year. So what can you do about it? Okay, now keep in mind, if the margin of the victory is so massive, truly massive, the losing candidate's political party is going to walk away and just let their leader go down. Uh, Nobody's going to risk a constitutional crisis to, to, to save somebody who is super unpopular. But if the race is close, all bets are off. And then the fight could continue long past election night. You could be, you know, trying to deal impact this whole other process you never heard of before, you're going to have to be you know, lobbying, protesting, speaking out, contacting lawmakers, a whole other process you've never done before. So landing in this completely unfamiliar uh, scenario, uh, what can you do? Uh, how, do you, how are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to do in this situation? There's basically three things that matter. Number one, get informed. A number of progressive organizations are already working hard to warn Americans about this growing threat to our democracy. Some organizations you could look into and research for yourself, ChooseDemocracy.us, ElectionTaskForce.org, ProtectDemocracy.org, Mobilize.us, AllAmericans.org, CivicAlliance.com, and the Fight Back Table at Demos.org. All these groups are working on this. Now, on the right... If, you, if that's your cup of tea, you could also check out the Heritage Foundation or the Government Accountability Institute. They're focused on voter fraud. But you got to get informed, no matter what side you're on. Also, number two, 
You got to get loud. You got to get loud. Situation like this, these days, everybody is a media channel. You are the media. So use your own voice. And, and when you do, my advice, speak to universal American values, not the partisan stuff, okay? Speak to the American values that every American should be down with, no matter what party they're in. The idea that every uh, voter counts and that every vote should be counted, that's an American value, period. The notion that the majority should rule in America, that's an American value. The idea that a, an incumbent president should concede honorably and, and graciously and ensure a peaceful transfer of power rather than trying to use every trick in the book to hang on to power, that's an American value too. If you stick with those values, you're going to be heard by a lot more people and help bring the country together. And lastly, sorry folks, voting's not enough. You're going to have to get active. You're going to have to get involved. You could join and support with your money some you know, existing organizations, powerful groups like the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, uh, the ACLU, uh, NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, Indivisible, uh, ColorChange.org. These groups are going to be fighting in the courts, fighting in Congress to try to make sure that we have a fair outcome. Those groups could use your help and your donations. But if it gets to the point where you feel that you have to take it to the streets, that, you, that you're going to have to go outside and demonstrate and march and protest, please do it peacefully. This is not just philosophy or morality. A lot of studies have shown that it's the peaceful protests that are more successful at challenging these would-be dictators and reversing coup attempts. It's the peaceful ones. Why? Because when the protests turn violent, all that chaos and carnage it actually chases away supporters. So rather than the demonstrations getting bigger and the protests getting bigger, they start to shrink. Then the government looks reasonable when it cracks down. So it's actually a lot better to follow the guidance of the late, great Gene Sharp. Now, he has written beautifully and well about how strategically you can roll back a coup just using very smart, very disciplined, very nonviolent protests. And a lot of his best ideas and people who've been influenced by that are available in something called a new guidebook called Hold the Line. You can look at look it up. It's called Hold the Line, uh, the Guide to Defending Democracy. You can get that at holdthelineguide.com. And that can give you a real good framework to move forward in a smart, peaceful way if you feel that you've got to take it to the streets. Now, look, I know all this stuff is overwhelming, and I got to admit, uh, some of these steps may not be enough. A truly rogue president could call on, um, you know, private armed militia uh, to try to intimidate lawmakers into keeping him or her in power. Or uh, they could just abuse their emergency powers and try to stay in office indefinitely. So, you know, we've got some real problems with our system. The best way to stop a coup is to update and strengthen our democratic system as soon as this election is over. Maybe we need to rethink, reimagine, or just get rid of this whole electoral college uh, extra innings thing in the first place. I know for sure we've got to do a better job of protecting voter rights, of prosecuting voter intimidation, and also making sure we've got the technology that nobody needs to be afraid of voter fraud. Uh, these are the steps that we're going to have to take to make sure that we have a democracy and the democracy endures. Because never forget this. In the long sweep of human history, a democratic republic is the rarest form of government on earth. Democracies are fragile. 
democracies can fail. And what citizens do or fail to do in a moment of crisis can determine the final fate of government of, by, and for the people. So let's do our best, vote, but this time we got to stay vigilant and active. Even after the ballots have been counted, we got to stay active all the way through to Inauguration Day. But I want to say to you, I will support the winner of a free and fair election, no matter which candidate wins. And I will oppose any so-called winner who prevails by twisting the process beyond recognition. Because any American should be willing to concede an election, but no American should concede the core principles of democracy itself. Before we leave just the structural question of minority rule, I think I want to ask, I have been saying for probably three years now that there is clearly a design flaw when you have gerrymandered legislative districts that are not apportioned one person, one vote. Then you have a wildly malapportioned Senate in which uh, if you're in California or Wyoming, you have the same amount of representation. And then you have a president who did not win the majority of the vote. So it seems as though the entire structure is existing to preserve minority rule. And I, I know, as you said, that's not always been the case, and we can talk about that. But then larded up over that, now you have a Supreme Court that is five justices appointed uh, by a minority majority president. It just feels as though, unless I'm missing something, this is a profound design flaw where there is no way that you're going to have anything close to majority rule because it feels as though, at least in this moment, every branch of government has been designed to suppress majority will. I know I'm wrong somewhere in there, but that's certainly the moment we seem to be in right now. The only place you're wrong is in the word design. The system itself is not necessarily baked to do that. And I'm hitting here again on the idea of a political project. We are absolutely in a moment when um, we have gotten to a place where we have minority rule and it is baked into the system that we currently have. But the system itself uh, doesn't have to do that. And there are times when it has not. But one of the things that, that has happened at least three times in American history is we go from a period where there is a focus on equality and on rights. And when that happens, when people, ordinary people start to have political power, they do in fact guarantee that they retain more of the value that they produce and they want they want what they have done. They don't want what anybody else has done, but they actually want what they have produced. And when that happens, um, the people who have tended to be able to accumulate wealth into their own hands start to worry that they are going to lose that power. And, and they're very really quite articulate about this in the 19th century. We've got people like James Henry Hammond in 1858 giving a speech in front of the Senate in which he says, listen, the way this country should work is that, you know, the vast majority of people are kind of dumb and they're kind of dull and they're hard workers and they make a lot of money. I'm not making this up, by the way. Um, he actually calls them mudsills, which is the part of the wood that gets hammered into the dirt to support a plantation home, which is where he lived. He was a South Carolina senator. And, and, and those people 
produce a lot. You know, they work hard, they produce a lot. But the problem is if you let them keep what they produce, they're just going to waste it. You know, they're going to fritter it away on stuff like food. And that's not going to move society forward. So what you really want to do is let that wealth accumulate at the top. And people like me, he says, are going to go ahead and, you know, we've got connections and we have educations and we know how to do things and we will move society forward. And this is obviously the way things should be because look, we've got beautiful paintings on our walls and God obviously favors us, unlike those people at the bottom of society. And he argues, of course, this point with regard to the African-American neighbors he enslaves, but he also applies that to the North. And he says, you guys are idiots because you've also got this same group of mudsills, but you let them vote. And if you let them vote, they're going to ask for more of what they're producing. And if they do that, they're going to redistribute wealth. And that means people like us aren't going to have as much money and we're not going to be able to move society forward. Andrew Carnegie says something very, very similar in 1890. And obviously you say, see the same thing nowadays with the concept of makers and takers. And I know only the best people. It's a way of thinking. Um, it's, a, it's a philosophy itself. But what happens when they begin to fear the idea of widespread voting is in each of the periods that I'm talking about, the 1850s, the 1890s, and now the present, is leaders start to claw back who gets to vote. First, they start to suppress the vote, either through nowadays making the lines long or in the 1890s, having grandfather clauses or understanding clauses in the Constitution or in the 1850s, making voting dependent on property. Then when even that isn't enough, they begin to, to change the, the media systems so that people only get access to their version of the facts. And that happened in all three of the periods I'm talking about. And then they actually start to game the system like they are nowadays saying, well, we'll gerrymander uh, the states to the point that you, you know, the Democrats basically can't win. So first they start with suppressing the vote, then they start with changing the media landscape, and then they go forward and say, I'm just going to change the way things are. And when even that doesn't work, in all three of the periods I'm talking about, they say, okay, we're really in trouble now. We better make sure that nobody can change the way the system works by baking it into the Supreme Court. So in the 1850s, you have the Tawney Court, the Roger Tawney Court going ahead and saying, we're just going to go ahead and advance the interests of the elite slaveholders through the courts, even though they absolutely do not have the numbers. They're only about 1% of even the Southern population, let alone the American population. In the 1890s, you have the, the Melville Fuller Court, which has a, a just such contorted decisions that the only ones that have still stood are the insular cases, which I think are, should be on the table now, Lochner, which says that that um, the state can't limit uh, workers' hours. It's Plessy v. Ferguson, which is a, a, a railroad case. I mean, we look at it as a racial case, it's a railroad case. It's in Ray Debs, it's Pollock v. Farmers Loans saying that the state isn't strong enough to have an income tax. You know, they try and bake their vision into the Supreme Court. And I and will point out that we don't retain the decisions from the Tawney Court or the Fuller Court. And I expect the decisions of the, the Roberts Court will also, in 20 to 30 years, be largely replaced. So this is actually really why I needed to talk to you today is because I think we forget, and Justice Ginsburg used to always say, it's a pendulum, it swings back and forth. And I think for an awful lot of folks who listen to this show, this is an apocalyptic, once-in-a-lifetime abuse of the levers of government and the court that we've never seen before. And what you're saying is, oh, buddy, no, 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 this is, you know, by capturing the court and getting the court on board with this plan, this is something that 
happens and it's corrected. And I guess my question is, it's corrected in some sense by a move back to that first vision of democracy you described, which is you pass H.R. 1, you give statehood to, you know, D.C. and Puerto Rico, you make sure everybody can vote, you do all the things that should have been done, by the way, after Bush v. Gore and the motor voter law uh, to ensure that voting is easy uh, as opposed to difficult. This is correctable. What other big structural changes have to happen to get the pendulum? I think a lot of people want to see that pendulum, uh, where it's going to go. What other big structural reforms happen? Well, so first of all, to go back to the project of democracy, which I think is really where we need to be. I hear this all the time. This is it. It's over. We're done. You know, we're, they've got the court. It's, it's going to be over here. And I just want to put that as an intellectual problem. If we are a democracy, how does a small minority retain power? I mean, what does that look like? And I'm not sort of like being philosophical here. What does that look like? What does it look like if, in fact, we have a Supreme Court that takes away things that 80% of us want? You know, does that mean we all go, okay, it's over now? I just don't see Americans saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to do exactly what the justices say. And, and a great example of this, of course, is the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which was enormously unpopular for various reasons that I won't go into here. But, but Americans didn't go, oh, yeah, that's right. No, a small minority of Americans went, yeah, that's right. We're going to abide by the Supreme Court. And the vast majority of Americans were like, ain't happening here. So the question is, um, First of all, what does that look like? And I think it's not sustainable. And this is one of the things I keep hammering on. It is not sustainable for us to have a president who is in power with only a minority of the popular vote. And I think it's really astonishing where we are right now in America that we have somebody running for re-election who is making no pretense to winning a majority. He is simply trying to game the system. And that's never happened before. And that's really important. The Supreme Court is not reflecting where the majority of Americans are. That is not sustainable. Gerrymandering does not reflect where people are. That is not sustainable. The Electoral College doesn't reflect where people are. That is not sustainable. The Senate does not reflect America. That is not sustainable. So where does the change come from? And the answer to that depends on how you see the world. I, I believe, I am an idealist, so I believe that the world changes according to the way people think and the pressure that we put on our representatives. Because if we vote them out, the people that we elect to make our laws are going to reflect more what we want them to do. And I think one of the problems that we've had since the Warren Court, since the Burger Court, and really since the New Deal, um, a lot of Americans thought our system was done, that we were going to have Social Security, we were going to have Medicare, we were going to have basic protections for minorities, for women. Those things just were there. I remember students saying to me 20 years ago when I talked about attacks on women's reproductive rights and them saying to me, oh, you're just an old feminist. These, these are never going away. No one's going to put up with it. And I kind of wish I had the list of those students in front of me to say, should we talk again? <laughs> but I think now that Americans recognize that they need to put skin in the game. And every time that I've talked about the 1950s the, and then the 1960s, the 1890s and the 19-aughts, and the 1860s and the 1870s, what changed the American government was the American people stepping up to the plate and saying, this is what democracy means. This is what we stand for. And I see that happening now. So as I bring you my worries, 
help me hold my worries. But as I bring them to you, one of the things I do worry about, you, you've talked around this, but let's just put it out there, is the great American reverence for the court. The court is our secular church. It is designed that way. They shuffle around in black robes for that reason. And even when we see the popularity of the other branches tanking, the court is held in really high esteem. And by design, right, that's Federalist Papers, neither the purse nor the sword— we love them. We need them. And we believe in them. And amazing uh, piece this week, I think, in New York Magazine saying, even as we're seeing a court quite literally being packed to the dismay of Americans, they still love the court. They can't disaggregate the politicization of the court and the aggressive attempts by the court to distort democracy with this idea that they revere the court. And I don't say that to say Americans are stupid or, you know, that I just think we need that. We need to believe that this third branch of government is oracular and different. And so when I worry and what I think about is I think we are careening into a moment where the court may just hand down some 6-3 per curiam, Bush v. Gore style something, something. Maybe they won't even include a reasoning. They haven't included reasoning all summer on these voter suppression cases. But I think that the court is both the solution and the problem, Heather. I think that we rely on it to solve the moment we're in. And also because of that deep affection, reliance, regard, we're almost completely unaware of the peril it's putting the country in. And so I don't even know what the question is except to say, I feel fairly confident that if there is a 6-3 decision saying we're tossing ballots in Michigan or Pennsylvania, and it's Bush v. Gore, one ride only. We're not, we're not even going to attempt to put this, whatever this equal protection argument is, in ways that make sense. That there's a deep fear I have that the American public will go, yeah, well, that's the court. That's what we did in 2000. Well, it's probably why I study politics and you study the courts, because we've had this moment happen before in America. And I disagree. I don't think Americans will say, oh, yeah, never mind. We're perfectly happy for the courts to have gone ahead and destroy something we care a lot about. And I think you can see this with the reaction to the ACA and the idea that it's going before the courts a week after the election. Americans care a lot about the ACA. And they have not paid attention to the courts because for many Americans, it does not seem to really be part of their lives. I mean, you talk about them being oracular, and for sure they are, but they're also not on the same schedule anybody else is, and they seem to deliberate in private, and they're all 600 years old, and you know, no one's really paying that close attention. And I think they are paying attention now, and I don't think... I, I don't think that you can divorce the reaction to the court from the reaction to what seems to be the machinations of Republicans across the country to go ahead and stay in power, even though they are so radically unpopular right now. I think a bigger concern for me is that, um, and I actually think this is probably a concern of Chief Justice Roberts as well, is that respect for the court and the idea that if they pull stuff that is too out there, the standing of the court's going to fail. And if the standing of the court fails, that puts us into a real problem. Imagine that our democracy is a dashboard. The way things are going right now, the lights are flashing, alarms are blaring, warning us that it is time to check our systems. And that is why the new podcast from The Nation is called 
System Check. On System Check, hosts Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren sit down to diagnose and repair our malfunctioning political system. System Check is a weekly show that asks what it would be like to break free from the oppressive systems that are holding us down. And it's unapologetically rooted in progressive black culture and politics, from the movement for black lives to the fight for climate justice, from the unjust immigration regime to the unfinished voting rights struggle. Dorian and Melissa want to know how you are living in, working around, smashing through, or recreating the systems that shape your life. System Check has just launched, and so just from the trailer you can hear, the biggest takeaway that that I got was that they really understand that the systems that seem to be melting down right now aren't actually malfunctioning so much as they're working more or less the way they were designed. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy System Check. Don't wait. Subscribe to System Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Friday. What are you proposing individuals do in in a situation where people have been out on the streets already and where some people, obviously not the majority of people, people have to be out working because of whatever, but a lot of people are home. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how do you see people resisting or um, going on some sort of mass uh, strike? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that we're doing, so at the website choosedemocracy.us, which is built to be nonpartisan, is built so that like your mom can get involved. This isn't actually like a left. My thing. mom is not nonpartisan. The, <laughs> well, it it's we're very explicitly trying to get out of activist mode, get out okay. of fighting Trump mode, and um, we've we've d- used we've built a pledge, which is an organizing tool. And so the mm-hmm. pledge has four parts. The first is you know we're going to vote, we're going to participate in the process. The second is that we are going to refuse to accept any results until all the votes are counted. Uh, and then the third is that um, we are going to nonviolently take to the streets if uh, if a coup is attempted. Um, and that the fourth is that we are willing to shut down the country if necessary, if they tried to give the presidency to someone who didn't win uh, all the votes, even within the context of the electoral college. And so what take to the streets looks like uh, to us is not the typical like protest kind of scenario that if we go out in the streets and it ends up being, I can't remember, can I curse? Whatever. It, you it, it, can, we just might get demonetized. Is that the rule? Got it. Okay. So it, if we end up in the streets, just protesting aimlessly mm-hmm. saying F Trump over and over oh. again, all that's going to, yeah, Joshua. Bad, yeah, exactly. Uh, me and my self-censorship. And so even <laughs> after I asked permission, <laughs> um, that, that we're just going to be playing into the existing narrative of polarization. Right. Okay. And so if, if that's all we're doing, like we are not talking about some, individual moral expression of outrage or, you know, um, you know, the, like, we're not trying to mobilize a small margin of self-identified activists. We're, we are in the category of what's called non-compliance, which is withdrawing our participation in a system. So that looks like, um, if, if we get to it, it looks like uh, certainly mass strikes uh, from the perspective of labor, but also there's a number of groups organizing things like youth strikes and various kinds of walkouts. Um, we are talking about um, 
varying like levels of shutting down corporations, shutting down the mail, shutting down transit, shutting down trash or maintenance, um, basically not allowing the society to function, which is that, so what we've learned from other coups and we have, so, well, let, let me actually talk a little bit more about choose democracy and then I'll talk more about the strategy, right. which is that, so so we, we, we're just getting going. It's taking off. We already have almost 30,000 people signing the pledge, uh, who've signed the pledge. And it's not just about like signing an abstract pledge. It's then once folks sign the pledge, they are um, on a list where we are doing trainings and the trainings include uh, direct action planning. They include some political education to psychologically and emotionally prepare people that like, yes, it can happen here. Like part of our project is just breaking through the American exceptionalism, the idea right. that like, this is all going to be taken care of. And to really say like, we can't count on the Democrats to fight here. We couldn't count on them in 2000. Um, and that, uh, in that psychological and logistical preparation, we, we're training uh, every two days or so. We're doing mass trainings where there's a few thousand people in every training. So we've trained many thousands of people so far. Uh, a lot of our trainers come out of the civil rights movements. Our lead trainer was one of the coordinators of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964, where they also faced extreme violence. So just as people are afraid of everyone from the militias to the Proud Boys and, you know, violence that can erupt, they were also dealing with Klan violence and police violence. And so it, it's, it's experientially grounded. And then there are also all of these historical case studies that is that are actually about, you know, like our strategic perspective on this is not actually ideological at all. It's just about trying to figure out, well, what works? And the main thing that, that works, um, whether that is, you know, in the context of, um, you know, Thailand in 1992 or Argentina in 1987 or Germany in 1920, is when people refuse to go along with the coup plotters. And so mm -hmm. as a result, so the pledge is an organizing tool where people are now, for example, the, we're not waiting. So group people who go to the trainings are um, trying to organize other sectors of society to commit to the pledge. So it's like an easy way to start organizing. So they're trying to get politicians to commit to the pledge, uh, et cetera. And um, then uh, in addition to that, we're going to be having, we're, to be clear, we, we're like a ragtag group of grassroots, uh, you know, direct action trainers. We don't have a lot of capacity. We're not trying to like organize the resistance against this. <laughs> but what we are trying to do is seed a framework that can be picked up by other groups. And so far, a lot of groups are picking it up. And so, for example, with labor, uh, recently, the Central Labor Council in Rochester, the Rochester AFL-CIO, uh, made this commitment that they are going to not only go on strike if uh, they try to steal the election, but they're going to call for a general strike and they're going to advocate within the AFL-CIO that other regionals do the same. The Seattle Educators Association just said that they're going to, you know, uh, they passed a resolution that within seven days of the election, if there's interference, they're going to vote on a work stoppage. Um, today, actually, and I and I didn't watch this, but the workplace, uh, the emergency workplace organizing committee, which is a collaboration between the electrical workers and the DSA, um, had this discussion among labor leaders, which included, um, you know, uh, the flight attendants union president Sarah Nelson uh, about, you know, what workers are going to do to stop Trump. Similarly, the Detroit postal workers. Um, are starting to organize. They're, they're passing out um, flyers with their official union letterhead with the Choose Democracy pledge. So there's a lot of stuff getting into motion. And then also on 
the kind of independent social movement side, for example, in a lot of different swing states, there's groups that are starting to organize. So groups like the Dream Defenders in Florida are collaborating with groups like Sunrise, where uh, they're they're doing several things. First, what they're, they're doing is doing a series of de-escalation trainings to have their folks show up to the polls so that if there are, is a presence of Proud Boys or militias or whoever, that, um, that they can protect people's ability to vote, uh, particularly in Florida in working class black neighborhoods. Um, and, then, uh, and then from there, starting to organize within universities and high schools to organize a youth strike because that's their base. Um, and so there's a lot of different groups. And, you know, certainly in D.C., there's a group called Shut Down D.C. that is doing all of this. Tra- they're doing trainings almost every day with different kinds of scenario planning, planning about how they're going to shut down this, you know, Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of different groups doing a lot of different things. And uh, what our hope is, with Choose Democracy is, is to um, offer a framework that's data driven um, about strategy that says, you know, when we come out, we're, we're going to be focusing on noncompliance. We're going to be mm-hmm. focusing not just on protest, uh, number one. And then, and then in, in our trainings, we go, we go down the line of what are the success, like lessons of success from other moments, other, um, other defeated coups uh, where, where they've been able to stop them. And that one of the main kind of, uh, you know, central, central lessons is that they were able to pull a broad base of society into the streets. And what this is about is I think for, for our part of the left is actually pretty counterintuitive. So I spent my whole life being very frustrated at the way that, for example, the Democrats constantly want to appeal to some mythologized center instead mm-hmm. of paying attention to a progressive base. And we get very frustrated about sort of tacking to the center. This is this is a moment where we actually need to push an uncertain center off the fence. And so in, to do so, we need to be as accessible as possible, which is also one of the reasons why nonviolence is part of our agreements, which I know is controversial uh, on the left. And you know, we could talk more about that, but the one thing I'll say about it uh, is that there's an active debate on the left right now in like, quote unquote, normal social change moments about the role of violence, about the role of property destruction. We're not weighing in on that debate. I think it's an interesting debate. I have a pretty nuanced opinion on it. What we're talking about right now is when you're in a very specific acute scenario of a contest for legitimacy, if that's if we agree that that's our goal, then we, number one, need to create a framework that can be as inviting to as many people as possible. Uh, and, and so nonviolence is part of that. And then number two, so that we can draw as strong of a contrast as possible of our behavior and the pair of military, you know, fascist street movements that these militias represent. Um, and so for those and other kinds of strategic reasons, that's why that's part of our tenants. But we're also not trying to police other groups in terms of what they want to do or anything like that. Um, but we really are trying to shift people kind of into a different mindset and understand that, like, you know, typically in social movements, it's like you have a longstanding grievance and you build a base and then you pick a target and you vilify that target and then you leverage the pressure of that base and you like heighten the contradictions in that kind of way. And we're playing a, a, a different game right now, at least for the next couple months, where we're just trying to um, not fall backwards on the erosion of our institutions so that then it, we, 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 can, we can move forwards and come out come out swinging next year. Um, yeah. yeah. 
And is choosedemocracy.org a good resource for people who want to like read and get more into the nitty gritty of the legal side of all of this? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. the website's choosedemocracy.us. And um, do not but go close. To <laughs> it's a bad uh, website. The Sorry, I'm now I'm like, oh, I should check the other URLs and see if they go. Um, I'm sure the web team uh, has has checked that. But yeah, on the website, there's both the pledge that people can sign up on. There's a number of resources. We have case studies about coups from all over the world there uh, that are actually pretty digestible. Um, we also have trainings to plug into and not just our trainings, but also trainings that other people are doing as well. Uh, and then pretty soon we're going to have an action hub where, like I said, it, the, the point of the action hub is not to be a clearinghouse for everything that's going to happen. But as things come online, it, um, we, we're going to try to filter through at least the actions that uh, are happening, that are public, that people can be invited into, that are aligned with these principles will be there. So it's so we if, if people who sign up do have a way of plugging in and um you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I really hope we don't have to do this. Of right. course I, you know, and um, we're not, we're not saying that it's going to need to get to this point. But what we are saying is that in most, coup, most coups are planned in a clandestine way where there's no warning. They're not tweeted about publicly. <laughs> exactly. For months and months and months. And, um, and still, and they're often defeated in a matter of days. And, and that's, that's the thing that's interesting is like when you look at like, for example, Argentina, which is like a particularly interesting case study where they, within a matter of days, uh, poor, you know, pulled 400,000 people out into the streets. They had people invading the military bases. They had all kinds of every base, you know, churches were refusing to comply. Postal workers were refusing to comply. And they were able to do that in a matter of days because they were better organized than we are in the U.S. You know, mm -hmm. it was what you were talking about before, Griscom, of, you know, the victory that just happened in Bolivia is the results of, of a well-organized labor movement, for example, and a well-organized organized indigenous sovereignty movement. We don't have a lot of that infrastructure, you know, like right. we don't have the infrastructure to call a general strike tomorrow. But at the same time, um, if we start building the groundwork so that if it ends up swinging this way, uh, we have we have a direction to head in, things can move the tectonic shifts that can happen in a society when a majority of people realize that a red line is being crossed, that democratic norms are being violated. And that's why we define the coup in those three ways, because they're very easy for most people to understand. Most Americans agree that all votes should be counted. Um, and so we might find ourselves in a situation where that that's much we're able to build alliances that we never could build before. And so, you know, the upside of it is that if it does go in this direction, um, it will, of course, build momentum that if, if we're able to actually stand by a broader principle that most people in this country can get behind and we defend the ground we stand on and then we win, we can lean into that infrastructure come January to fight for what we really need. And that that's also a great lesson of other coups. And so to, to use the Argentina example again is, you know, so Argentina was having military coups up and down, back and forth, you know, since the 1930s. Um, in in the late 80s, they got sick of it. People came, you know, poured out 
non-compliance stopped the coup. And then after that, of course, they, you know, they've had lots of problems since then, but their labor movement got way stronger. The occupation and democratization of empty factories was, I mean, the whole like horizontalism movement, like their, their whole left got revitalized by it, even though the work to stop a coup isn't of the left. And that's, this is like kind of the first project I've worked on. That's not really of the left, which, you know, like we are, we are a part of a, a, a center left coalition. You know, we are working with groups like protect the results, which is includes a lot of big mass organizations because we need, we need everybody on board. And so that's the moment that we see ourselves in. that is a successful tactic. The thing that I call the Paltic Eternity in Road to Freedom, that you have an unceasing stream of small to medium level provocation. So, and the idea is that these things will give a hit, positive hit to your supporters and a negative hit to your opponents. Everyone gets addicted to the hit, whether it's a pleasant hit or whether it's an unpleasant hit. The addiction can be pleasant or unpleasant, but either way, you're addicted. Namnon, you're describing that. You wait for Trump to do the latest outrageous thing, and then you report it as outrageous, and you've had your little hit, and then you wait for your next hit. But you're not actually going anywhere with that. This is why theory and thinking is so important. People who say they believe in freedom and democracy and things like this, a lot of them have gotten themselves caught up in these kind of mechanical ways of thinking that we have the right institutions, or the market's going to solve the problem for us, or history's on our side, or American exceptionalism. If you don't have some way of theorizing what Trump is. And I'm not saying you have to agree with my theories or your theories or anybody else's theories, but if you don't have some theory of what it is, every empirical accident is a surprise to you. And if you don't have some theory of what it is, then you also don't have some theory of how you push back against it and you're helpless. I mean, the discussion about Trump is basically what he is not. So he's not fulfilling this function. He's not doing this. What we need to be able to do is to say what Trump is, to say what he is, And then once you say what he is, then you can start to fight it. We talk about the pandemic as though it were a series of failures. No, it's not a series of failures. It's the achievement he's going to be most remembered for. That 300,000 Americans died in 2020 for no particular reason. That's an achievement. I mean, it took real work to bring that off. And I'm not saying that he intended it from beginning to end. I'm not saying that there was a plot in January that 300,000 will be dead in December. But I am saying that is a result of decisions that were made by him that have structural explanations. If we keep seeing Trump in terms of omissions, that he's not a normal politician or he's not a Democrat, then we don't see that from him for what he is, whatever that might be. I think that's also the problem. He's a white guy. He's old. He wears a tie. What can he possibly be except somewhere in the zone of normal? And so we just allow ourselves to be surprised, as you say, with with every little thing. So I admire the few people who are out there, even when I don't agree with them, who are trying to say, well, look, Trump is actually this. This is actually an oligarchy, or this is actually government by entertainment, or Ruth Ben-Giet's new book, this is a strongman phenomenon. Try to get some purchase on it intellectually, because if you don't have purchase on intellectually, then that's when you get surprised and thrown off by every little thing. That is terrifying for people of a certain political class to admit that they're, number one, dealing with evil. I mean, objectively evil. There's no moral good through this man's policies, because if you admit you're dealing with evil, then you got to do something about it. So psychologically, it's a lot easier to not name the thing for whatever it may be, because it keeps you safe. 
but it doesn't really keep you safe. Folks with public voices, I think a lot of them are scared to death, but they don't want to name the thing. Because then that's even more frightening because then they got to say, my God, what am I have to do? What's my responsibility? I think evil is a good word. It's one that I've been using in our malady. My definition of our malady at the beginning is the unnecessary illness and death and the political evil that surrounds it. And I think you're right. There is a almost taboo-like hesitation to move into truly ethical judgment. That is ethical judgment, which actually relies upon a metaphysic of something is good and something is evil. And that is a form of safe playing, because if, so long as you're not making the metaphysical judgment, you're normalizing it in some way, and you're offering other people hope that somehow this will turn back to normal. We don't have to face up to it. There's a psychological tendency as well here, which is that if you didn't name it right off the bat, it's hard for you to name it later on. It goes back to your question of why is it so hard to convince people? It's because didn't get it right in 2016, then you're probably not getting it right now. Or if you, you're spending a lot of time explaining why it is you didn't get it right before. I mean, that's a big problem. The rallies were obviously fascistic in 2016. But if you didn't say that then, what word are you going to use now? I think that's also part of the problem. I think your word fear, though, is very well taken. I'd push that out in a different direction. He's running now on fear, more so than 2016. And 2016 was a mix. 2016, they were talking about infrastructure. They were trying to go to the left of the Democrats on some issues. Whereas this time, it's just pure fear. The black people are going to rape you in the suburbs and they're going to burn down the cities. Pandemic is either their fault or it's a conspiracy or it's not happening. Fear consciously created and then manipulated. The Democrats are in the situation now where they're running against a Reichstag fire. They're not really running against a political party. They're not really running against another campaign. And it'd be really nice if they were. That would be a much more comfortable place for them to be. How can we try to explain to the public, maybe to the Democrats, that you're up against a movement, but you're still practicing normal politics? I'll give you an example. All the hand-wringing about institutions. All the upset. Oh, Trump doesn't follow the rules. Doesn't obey subpoenas. He's threatening people. He's publicly threatening to not leave. All the militias. And it's deeply troubling to see folks who don't realize they're up against a movement. These folks don't care about the rules. How can we explain to them what's really going on? What sort of lessons can we draw from history? What one wants to think if one is a late 20th century, early 21st century centrist Democrat, or maybe even liberal conservative, what one wants to think is that people are basically rational and they're making choices based upon their interests. And politics is just one flavor of interest that would make phenomena like Trump much less likely. History shows that people also can learn to like pain. They can also learn to like inflicting pain on others. And that that's something that you're up against. I think the Democrats are up against that right now. This is a president who happily circulates as much pain as he can within the system on the rationale that his people are going to suffer for him and they're going to enjoy suffering because of their idea that other people are suffering more. Their suffering has a point. They're suffering for something and other people, you know, the blacks, the immigrants, whatever, they're suffering more than we are. The enlightened ideas that democracy is based on are a constant fight. They are constantly at stake. They're precisely what you can't take for granted. It doesn't follow from that. You therefore imitate the other side. The fact that there is a Trump death cult now, which there clearly is, doesn't mean that you then have a Biden death cult. That would be absurd on a number of levels. It does mean that you have to recognize that you're fighting in two ways. 
you're fighting to win votes and you're fighting for the righteousness of the system. And that fight for the righteousness of the system is not a defensive fight. If it's an offensive fight, you lose. Because if it's a defensive fight, then all the emotion, no matter how crazy that emotion might seem to you, no matter how crazy the idea of dying for Trump by not wearing a mask might seem to you, it's still emotion and it's still real and still has its own logic and its own power. Can't fight for the righteousness of the system by assuming that the system is appealing or that it's going to work. You have to fight for the righteousness of the system by making big ethical claims on its behalf and big claims about the future on its behalf. You have to be radical yourself, but in a different way. Corona fascism. We've got more than one thing happening simultaneously. So we've got, okay, this virus, we've got a plutocracy, we've got authoritarianism, we've got all this suffering, but they're not discrete things. They're all part of one big problem. So how are you working through that? In a hospital system or pretty much anywhere else, show up in America as a privileged person, a middle-aged, articulate, white male. But from the position of being in a hospital for a long time, in emergency hospitals for a long time, in an emergency room for a long time, I did see some things that I'd seen before, and including some things that happened to some people who are close to me. And because I think I was so close to death, the significance of them was brought home to me more than it would have been otherwise. The racial and economic inequality, which was which is all the more obvious in these life or death situations, did make it easier for me to write about the kinds of overlaps you're talking about. The way that Corona layers on what Americans expect from health anyway. Even before 2020 starts, we're in a system where we don't have universal access to health care because there's this practical everyday consensus which says it's okay to have bad health care so long as your bad health care is not as bad as your neighbor's health care. Already in that situation, and it's racial because you know we can't treat healthcare as a right, because if we treat it as a right, then that would just mean, so goes the argument, that all those black people and those Hispanics and those immigrants and so on would just abuse it. So we can't give it to them. They're just going to abuse it. And the other argument that's made to white people is, and by the way, you white people, you're the frontiersmen. You're the rugged individualists. You're tough. You know not to talk about pain or disease. You don't need healthcare. Right. And so you have the sadism of some people being pleased because they suffer less than other people. And you have the masochism of being willing to suffer basically for nothing. Even before we get to coronavirus, we have white people bringing down their own standard of living. If you compare when I was 10 in 1980 with now, we've lost three years conservatively compared to comparable countries. A lot of that is precisely white people basically choosing through their political choices to live shorter lives. We're already there. And then coronavirus layers on top of that because what is COVID? COVID is a disease. When the first reports come in in March, April, it's clear that it's taking the lives of Blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans at a much higher rate than whites. White people live longer than black people. Once that's politically known, it's normal. The good liberals and the media are going to decry this, and rightly so. But the way it feels to a lot of Americans is, oh, okay, well, this is something where black people and brown people are suffering more, then that's okay. It's normal for me to suffer. So long as black people and brown people suffer more, that's normal. Because that was the normal even before we got to COVID. 
And COVID just reinforces that. And so that helps to explain this strange dynamic where a lot of white people are willing to risk their own lives. If they spread it, their idea is, well, it's other people who are going to bear the brunt of this, not people like me. So this dynamic of I'm going to be the heroic, rugged individual who sacrifices his life in effect for nothing except for the feeling of sacrifice. I'm going to feel good about that, but I'm also going to secretly feel good about the fact that in this disease environment, it's really those other people who are much more likely to die than I am. What do we know about the connections between a humane society and authoritarianism? I'm strongly convinced that it does. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book is get health and freedom together. I mean, freedom is the most important category to me. I mean it very broadly. If you look at it from an individual level, which I now feel like I can do, you realize that when you can't talk, you don't have freedom of speech. And when you can't move, you don't have freedom of assembly. When you don't think you're going to have a future, freedom is no longer a meaningful concept to you because freedom can only involve your agency as it's directed towards the future. Social level, if you can't afford health care, you're afraid. If you're ashamed to talk about health care, you're less free. If you're aware of that access to health care is going to be competitive and somebody who's less sick than you might come ahead of you because they have better insurance or better connections or whatever it might be, all of that, whether there's a pandemic or not, all of that creates a situation where there's a, a totally unnecessary reservoir of anxiety and fear. And that totally unnecessary reservoir of anxiety and fear can be directed in other places. And that's what we have. The people who are afraid of Black Lives Matter, they don't generally have any reason to be afraid of Black Lives Matter. But they do have reasons to be afraid. They are afraid of things. The talent that Trump has is to generate the anxiety or to take American anxiety and fear that already exists and direct it in the ways that he wants it to be directed, right? More police officers have died of COVID that they caught on duty than of all other causes put together this year. So that's what you have to be afraid of. 300,000 Americans are going to die this year from COVID. That's the real thing to be afraid of. And yet, partly because Americans don't expect to be treated well about health, this has now become the next level of that, where we've just gotten used to the abuse. We take the abuse, but the trauma that goes along with the abuse is then available to be pushed in other directions. And that is a way for authoritarianism to work. You can imagine a society where that fear and anxiety doesn't exist because most democracies that have our level of wealth don't actually have that anxiety. I do think there's a direct connection. And I think pointed towards November, Trump understands that he can't win a democratic election. And I think he understands that the pandemic and the economic downturn give him the sources of energy that he just might be able to use to push through some different way. I think he's in the worst, the better territory now because he understands these things. Evil understands evil. He understands that the more anxiety and fear is out there, the bigger the chances he has to somehow turn it in his direction and pick up the pieces. What do you say to folks, being timely, who say you guys were talking about, or Timothy Snyder, you were talking about a Reichstag fire? Where is it? You guys are alarmists. You've been saying all these bad things are going to happen. There's going to be a coup, a Reichstag fire. It didn't happen. You were wrong. What do you tell those folks? Obviously, we are in a slow motion Reichstag fire right now. That's what's happening. Trump is not as skilled as Hitler. He doesn't work as hard as Hitler. He doesn't have the same level of confidence as Hitler. But he's clearly looking for that emergency, has tried to make Black Lives Matter into that emergency. The language of the left and anarchists and thugs and so on is very similar to the language which was used after the Reichstag fire. He keeps trying to make the Reichstag fire work. If it doesn't work, 
that's to the credit of the people who realize that there's a problem and are working against it. Really understand how at this point in September 2020, you could look at this general situation and say, that is just a political campaign. It's not a political campaign. It's emergency politics in the constant search of an emergency. And, you know, whether they can line up the emergency politics with the emergency, I don't know. But it's all they've got, all they're going to have through November. questions that people ask me is where do you get the courage like where do you get courage to do things you know I, I always I always taken aback by that question because it doesn't feel like courage to me I'm scared all the time too and this moment and these moments are not about Ignoring your fear. Let this moment radicalize you. Let this moment really put everything into stark focus. This is a seventh generation moment. This is our present moment. And are we going to allow our fear to paralyze us and to make us give in? Or are we gonna turn our fear into fuel? This election, voting for Joe Biden is not about whether you agree with him. It's a vote to let our democracy live another day. That's what this is about. And so I'm not here to say that any one politician is the answer because no one politician is the answer. No one president is the answer. You are the answer. Mass movements are the answer. Millions of people are the answer. You are the answer. And so I need you. We need you. Because we all recognize that November, frankly, I wish it wasn't like this. And it, it only serves to highlight the brokenness of our entire system. But whether we like it or not, November's about survival. And I've had moments where I'm terrified. But what you do with that fear is that you look at that fear and you turn it into fuel. Because fear, what does fear do? Even on a physical level, take a step back. Feel how it's making your heart beat faster. Because it's telling you to act, to leap, to jump. That's what you need to do right now. That's how you use your fear. And there are moments where looking back on the outside, people call it courageous, but on the inside, how I felt, I, they were the moments that I was the most scared in my entire life. They didn't feel courageous. But courage is a funny thing because at least in my experience, courage is just something you see when you play the tape back. Courage is something that you just see in retrospect. When you ask people what drove you to that moment, what gave you that courage, they will almost always tell you, I wasn't being courageous. I was just doing what I thought was the right thing to do. And when you're prepared 
either that fear or the concentration of that moment, you can turn it into focus. You can turn fear into fuel. And right now we need to focus on this election. That's what we need to do. We need to focus on organizing. We need to focus on voting for Joe Biden. I don't care if you like him or not. That's not what this is about. This is not about our opinion on personalities at this juncture. This is about the preservation of our democracy. And so what I'm asking you to do is that maybe you don't ask other people, what do I do? Maybe you ask yourself, what do I want to give? And that is where your actions will be the most passionate and be the most impactful. You will find a way. I know you will find a way. We've just heard clips today, starting with a TED Talk from Van Jones laying out the inner workings of elections we don't usually see. Amicus discussed why minority rule is ultimately unsustainable in the U.S. The Michael Brooks Show explained the tactics and strategies needed to garner the largest group of allies possible to prevent a coup. Chauncey DeVega talked with Timothy Snyder on The Truth Report about the slow-motion Reichstag fire we're in the middle of, and AOC explained why we need to turn our fear into energy. That's what everyone heard, but members got a couple of bonus clips, including Deadline White House on MSNBC explaining why the legal troubles hanging over Trump's head will likely lead him to be the first president in history to self-pardon, and Strange Days discussed why Trump's massive debt and knowledge of classified information makes him a genuine national security threat. For non-members, of course, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they're part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can find them if you still want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership. We don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information, and every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, from Vancouver again. I just wanted to just make a comment about uh, how the podcast is affecting my view on what's happening here north of the 49th. Um, the episode about busting myths uh, was very interesting and insightful, and it led me to the realization that here in Canada, there is several similarly you know, told myths that we believe in one of this myth of multiculturalism and also built built on benevolence as it relates to race relations and Canada's sort of view uh, in the world that, you know, they were the, the ending point for the underground railroad and they helped slaves and all this. And, and while some of that is true, uh, it, the history is completely washed of other things that, that the states took part in. So I just wanted to mention that, yeah, that those episodes that are focused on the, the United States I think have significance globally and are, you know, generally pretty good. So thanks again and uh, see you.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. So now I I just want to touch on something else. I'm going to go long because all this needs to be said before the election because who knows what's going to happen. If we lived in a parliamentary system, which I think third-party voters sort of dream of, they dream of being able to vote for a non-major party and, and have their ideology really represented in the person that they vote for. If we lived in a parliamentary system, the Greens and the Democrats would very likely form a coalition in which the Greens would be at the negotiating table. In our system, the Greens opt to cast themselves out entirely where they have no seat at the table. And so I can't help but wonder how much more progressive the Democratic Party would be if the most progressive people in the country made it a point to try to pull that party to the left, the major party that comes closest to representing them, which they would inevitably, I promise you, form a coalition government with if we were in a parliamentary system rather than abandoning it to the corporatists. We don't live in a parliamentary system, obviously, but what we do live in is effectively a caucus system. And I've never heard anyone talk about this. I'm calling this an original idea on my part, uh, but I'm sure someone else smarter came up with it a long time ago. Each party has a wide variety of caucuses within it that function like minor parties within a coalition government. So on the Democratic side, and I'm just talking about the political caucuses, and I'm probably not even going to mention them all, but in broad strokes, there is the Congressional Progressive Caucus. More moderate, sort of the centrist Democrats, are represented by the New Democrat Coalition. And then the real conservative Democrats formed the Blue Dog Coalition. So those are all caucuses that exist within the Democratic Party. On the Republican side, you've got Liberty Caucus and and the Freedom Caucus and, and probably others. The point is that each of these caucuses is effectively like a minor party that have come together to form a coalition government. That is how parliamentary systems work. If you love the idea of third and fourth and fifth party voting, what you are imagining is a parliamentary system in which no party gets a majority of the vote, and therefore multiple parties have to come together in order to form a majority coalition party. Well, in our system, It's just basically already happened. The coalitions are built in. The progressives and the moderates and the conservative Democrats have already formed a coalition. So each has a voice at the table. And keep in mind just how politics works. People always triangulate between the range of options in front of them. Instinctually, they're trying to find the middle ground, trying to make everyone happy. And so for years, the Democrats have been internally triangulating between hardcore neoliberalism and super tepid progressivism. And then Bernie and AOC came along and showed that when you bring forceful 
leftism to the table, the table actually begins to tilt because people are trying to triangulate, but there's a whole new force at play. So in the end, politics is always about managing factions, and the two-party system is effectively an illusion that masks the existence of all of America's factions, whereas parliamentary systems puts those factions more on display. But there's no reason to think that Democrats are monolithic or that Republicans are monolithic, and that because they are monolithic and they don't represent you, you then have to vote third party. No, there are coalitions within or caucuses within the Democratic Party that absolutely represent your interests. And if there aren't, there could be if more progressive people joined the Democratic Party and insisted on there being a Democratic Socialist caucus or a Communist caucus or whatever. You could build that power inside the Democratic Party and actually have a seat at the table. Whereas now, the most progressive people in the country choose to opt out of the option for power. They have opted out of the option to have a seat at the table. So on this note, New Zealand just had an election where Labour won a decisive victory, but they also just signed an agreement of cooperation with the Green Party of New Zealand. So they're officially running a Labour government with Green support. And the Greens have a seat at the table. And the interesting quirk about the agreement they just signed is that it says that they have agreed to agree to disagree, <laughs> meaning that the Greens have dis- have agreed to join a coalition with the Labour Party. They have agreed to work together, but they have insisted on having the right to disagree with things that the, that the government ultimately decides to do should that eventuality arise. And that sounds exactly like what would happen if the Greens had a caucus inside the Democratic Party, or the Democratic Socialists had a caucus inside the Democratic Party. They would have this formal agreement to be part of the coalition with the rest of the the Democrats, but reserve the right to object and disagree with what the party was doing, or if they were in power, what the government was doing. And that is exactly what a good functioning government would do. There would be this coalition, a functioning government made up of a coalition of people who don't agree on everything. So the big difference is that in America, you get to name your caucus affiliation or, or, you know, what in a parliamentary system, what would be a minor party. You get to name your party affiliation in the primary elections. You vote to support the caucus that you want to support. You get to vote for the most progressive candidate. You get to vote if there was someone running as a far-left Democrat who would otherwise be a Green Party candidate. You can say, that's who I want. I want the Green Party candidate, or I want the Democratic Socialist candidate running in the Democratic primary. And then, in the general election, you support the coalition that includes your caucus. If you're a Green in the U.S. who insists on staying outside the coalition, you have no seat at the table whatsoever, and the Democratic establishment dismisses you out of hand and makes no effort to get your vote. Likewise, to those who toothlessly threaten this phantom leverage to withhold their votes. If there is only one lesson that we should learn from the past five years, 
it is actually that Trump is only a symptom of our problems. But if there are two lessons that we can learn, then the second should be that politicians like Bernie Sanders and AOC and the rest of the squad have shown us that leverage and power comes from being on the inside, not from making threats while stuck on the outside. In the coming days, I would love to hear your thoughts by voicemail or email regarding the election and any subsequent protests and literally whatever is happening. We don't really know what episodes are going to sound like right away. We got to see how things go. So send us your, your thoughts, your messages. If you go to a protest, record some sound, tell us what's happening and, and send all of that in. Keep the comments coming to the number 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.